We have one remaining with the individual, and he's not going to let her leave the aircraft at this time. He made me feel very sure that uh, we had a very real and horrifying threat. We don't know who he was, where he came from, or where he went. Hey, everybody. So, uh, welcome. Uh, this evening, I've got Jude Morrow, the author of Dan Cooper, which is a great book. It's a thriller, I suppose. Right, Jude? Yeah, it's a sort of, it's a thriller and it's unashamedly fiction. It's absolutely fiction. And here it is for the record. I made it up, all of it. I got you. Just to, just to make it clear, in case anybody's fighting about it in 50 years. I, made I, it I, definitely, I definitely get what you're laying down there. Okay, so, and also we have uh, Chris Cunningham, who, I, the re- researcher extraordinaire, uh, one of my very best friends in the world. Uh, I talk to Chris every day. He's a good fella. He's uh, living in Miami. Or is it Miami? You live in Miami, right? I live in the southern tip of Florida. Oh, okay. Southern tip. Okay. So close enough, I suppose. And uh, he is a researcher extraordinaire, uh, particularly on issues of the flight path and the uh, timeline of the Cooper case. You go to my website, you can see, which my website is norjack.org, that is N-O-R-J-A-K.org. You can see his uh, amazing timeline, which he made. He made an incredible timeline, which pretty much is canon at this point. If you want to know when a something an event happened on the flight, you can go to my website and check out Chris's timeline of everything. He spent many months doing this, and it's a, it's a pretty rocking and rolling thing to look at. So anyway... Today, we're going to talk about... I think it, I hmm? think it's funny. You were like, here's Jude Morrow, best-selling, award-winning author, inventor, and here's Chris Cunningham, functioning alcoholic with anger. <laughs> welcome, Chris. Yes, welcome. <laughs> Nerdy. I've never written a book, never been on TV, never done anything of note. So, but You should. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> you should. You're, you're a smart guy. So, at any rate... Absolutely. I, I mean, by the way, I mean, I... I got a lot of my knowledge from both Chris Cunningham and Ryan versus others in here. And by the way, if we're on the topic of functioning alcoholics for YouTube, is having a beer on air permitted to not demonetize your channel? I would think you can have a beer on air. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm guessing that's, I, I don't know that rule about YouTube. So I'm guessing, we're, yes. We're allowed, we're allowed to have beer in Eric's place and we're allowed to swear. <sighs> In, in honor of Ulysses, yeah, drama, drama. So today, uh, more drama. Stick with tea out of my baby Yoda cup. Grogu, yes, he would never. He will never not be baby Yoda. He will always be. Or, or, yeah, he will always be baby Yoda, not Grogu. Right. Yes. So I'm sticking with water. So at any rate, today we are going to talk about one of the quintessential debates in the Cooper world, which has been going on for, I guess, ever since it happened was. Did Cooper die on that night? And the FBI have, over the years, I'll just start out with this, with the FBI over the years have often maintained that he did die that night. Um, He did crater into the ground or it was a no pull or went into the Columbia River or wherever and drowned or something like that. However, I will start out with this saying that in my research lately, I have been in communication with at least two actually FBI agents from that time period. And I asked both of them what their actual gut instinct about Cooper was. And the sense was that they thought he survived. So they said that when we didn't discover 
when no one called in and said they found a body in their backyard, when we did not see a parachute slung in a tree, when no one spotted a parachute blowing in the wind with a body attached to it in the middle of a field, that sort of thing. When they looked for vultures, actually. They did not see any vultures. So they said within a week or so, they kind of got the sense that he had lived and that really much of their statements about his death was to discourage copycats. And as I've said a million times, what else are they going to say? Well, shit, folks, I guess he got away. You know, they're not going to say that. So they don't want to encourage the copycats and things like that. So yeah, with that, with that said, uh, Larry Carr, who was the most recent case agent um, on Norjack, um, has been pretty public and vocal about his opinion that Cooper died. So, That's right. Um, you know, regardless of what the company line was, apparently Larry, that's his own personal opinion. And he's held that even since his retirement. So that's right. And he is his Ralph Hemmelsbach, who's the most notable case agent in this. Well, although Ralph Hemmelsbach was never actually a case agent. People forget that. I should go ahead and say that Hemmelsbach was a Portland agent. He was never a Norjack case agent. So and the Norjack case agents kind of hold that against him a little bit. You know, I think Larry would say, like, what was that guy's issue? You know, he was never even a, an agent for us. I don't get it. But that's Ralph. And Ralph barely, Ralph would say that it was a 50-50 chance is what Ralph believed. He said 50-50. Ralph was all in on the death camp, actually, originally, until our friend Mac McNally, uh, Marty McNally, survived. He said that really shook him to the core. If you read the Norjack book, he says that shook him up. That he said, wow, okay, well, I guess anybody can survive this. So perhaps he did survive. But that's where we are in that we have this debate about whether he lived and died. And a lot of agents did start to think he perished, especially after the money find. Um, I believe Dorwin Schroeder, who was the case agent at the time in Portland, who was working at least that the money recovery, said that a, a thief is not easily parted from his money. And that was his belief and in, in why that would be there. So I talk enough on this channel, so when I have guests, I want them to talk. So um, I'm going to start out with, I'm going to go with Chris because he's higher up in my in my vision here. So Chris, what do you believe about Cooper's fate? Um, well, I'll start off by saying that I used to be very, very strongly in he definitely died. Um, and then my my opinion on that has softened over the years. And... Um, that's in large part due to Martin Andrade's book. In fact, I talked with Marty today. Um, and, um, you know, the fact that so many um, bomber crews were able to survive um, the exit out of a, you know, spiraling uh, aircraft at night over, you know, unknown ter terrain. Um, and all they had to do was pull the ripcord. That's compelling. Um, and it's obviously not, you know, a perfect one-to-one, -one, but it's compelling. It's compelling information. And in speaking with skydivers that, you know, I, I, the, the, the story is always told to me, if you can pull your ripcord, you'll survive. If you pull your ripcord, you'll survive. If he pulled his ripcord, he'll survive. Um, and that's compelling. Um, you know, I'm not a skydiver, never jumped from an, from an aircraft like, like Jude has. So, you know, Jude obviously would have far more insight into that. Um, what I will say is that there is absolutely zero evidence that Cooper survived this attempt. Um, absolutely zero evidence to suggest 
that he survived. There's evidence to suggest he could have survived or statistically could have survived, um, but there's no evidence to suggest that he did. Also, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that he died. There's evidence to suggest that he could have died, possibly died, but there's no evidence. The other enigmatic parts of this case, like the drop zone, we have data points that we can fasten ourselves and kind of, you know, come up with some, uh, you know, some ideas, some evidence-based opinions. Tina Barr, we have data points, science that we can kind of um, fasten ourselves to and, and use. With Cooper's survival, we have absolutely no data points. We have absolutely no evidence. We have nothing to base his survival or not. Um, and it's what it comes down to is an, is essentially a matter of opinion, um, complete speculation. Um, and what I think a lot of people have done in this case is they have walked in with preconceived notions and they've decided, well, Cooper definitely died. So I'm going to find out reasons why he died or Cooper definitely survived. And I'm going to go and look for reasons why he, he would have survived or, you know, how he survived. And obviously, I think that's the wrong approach, and, and I'm guilty of that myself, uh, and um, that's why I think my opinion has softened in those years since, as I've become a little more open-minded. Um, but uh, I, yeah, that's kind of a non-answer, but I think it's a good way to kind of lay the groundwork for this discussion, um, because really what we're talking about is probability, odds. Um, and th there's really nothing that even the Tina Bar money find doesn't really tell us about his survival because that money could have arrived there if he lived. That money could have arrived there if he ended up in the drink and died. So it really doesn't give us any kind of clue. Um, and we really don't have any clues as to his survival. So this is really just kind of pure opinion, pure speculation, whatever your particular you know cup of tea is. Um, Jude obviously has very strong opinions on the matter, and I'm interested in speaking with him. And, and, and to be clear, if somebody put a gun in my mouth and, and asked me to, you know, what do you think? I'd say he probably died. But again, that's based purely on, on my own personal opinion, just kind of my gut, I guess. Sure. And, and not really on any. Yeah, you're pretty much agnostic on this. Sort of. If I, if I had to split hairs, I'd say he probably pulled a Martin McNally and he survived, but he lost the money and ended up not being successful. But right. it would not surprise me to find out that he cratered into the ground near Vancouver. Um, would not surprise me at all. Would not surprise me if, if you know, he landed safely in a cow pasture either. So, um, but, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm a little bit kind of in the middle. And, but at the end of the day, we don't have any evidence to really kind of stand on. It's very, very loose sand, um, no hard ground at all. Yeah, that's where I, that's kind of why I wanted, especially you to come on as well with Jude, because I would be a believer in that he lived. That's kind of where I land on, you know, intellectually, I guess, having researched this. And I know that you're, you've always been very fair and agnostic. And I know that Jude is the, is on the other side. Uh, he is a believer that he died firmly. So, Jude, what is it, if you had to say that, you know, obviously I just gave it away that you believe he perished that night. If there was one thing that makes you really think that, then, then what is it? 
Oh, making me pick one. I, I have several things, but... Well, we'll go ahead. But... I want the opportunity to go on record because I'm the Vortex WWE heel guy that's, <laughs> oh, why are you such a Cooper basher, dude? Why why do you hate Cooper? You know, he stuck it to the man. He got a bag of cash and off he went under the wind. Let me remind everybody what Cooper could either could have been and most certainly was. Number one is a possible suicide bomber who decided not to detonate the bomb. That's number one. Number two is a kidnapper. What is the difference between what Cooper did than somebody throwing someone into the trunk of a car, driving around with them for two hours under the threat of death in exchange for a bag of cash? Nothing. <laughs> you know, so this heroic status of Cooper is yeah. something I never got. I never understood this. I, I can see, you know, this, uh, you know, this hero that had a grudge and he was sad. So what do people do when they're sad other than improve their circumstances, but kidnap women and children and men and hold them in the air under the threat of a bomb? So he, someone that would have the emotional instability to carry out such an outrageous act, which is an aerial bank robbery with an escape using a parachute, is someone who doesn't care if they live or die. And people that don't care if they live or die are often at a higher risk of death than the average mm. person. So if you were to pen, if you were to say, right, I'm cornering you now, and I brought props that I, I uh, we agreed on earlier, is why do you think Cooper died? Is yes, I've jumped out of planes. And it's down to the parachute that he had. Now, as what the parachutes that Cooper were given, the Cossie backpacks, the backpack parachutes, they were not standard MB8s. Because what I've got, I've brought a special guest, which is an intact MB8, but has not been altered. So okay. inside the MB8 that Cooper jumped with was a 24-foot canopy. Is that correct? From the packing cards? From yes. Yes. Is a 24-foot canopy that small? That's very small. And if, because uh, somebody actually commented today, you know, why was there a 28 and a 24? And my reason for that is if Cossie and likely, or not Cossie, sorry, Norm Hayden and possibly Norm Hayden's wife had to jump at the same time, one was obviously a lot lighter than the other. Um, so if Norm and the co-pilot or his wife or whoever, who was much smaller, had the same size of parachute, they would drift too far from one another for rescue. So that's the logical probably answer as to why, because a parachute is fixed to a person's size. So he picked a very small parachute. He picked a 24 a, foot as opposed to a 26 foot is, is what it was, not 28. It was a 26 and 26. 24 foot, yeah. It's still, even at two feet, yeah. it's a big difference. Now what this, this has the cape welds on it. Now most of what people see in the vortex is the ad adapted ones. Now, these are cape wells. So this means mm -hmm. if Cooper's strung up on a tree, he can get out of the harness. The second thing is, is if he lands in the drink, he can get out of the harness. The yeah. rig that he took did not have these on it. These are cape well quick releases. So if he is falling into the water, he is not getting out of this harness. Yeah, he's going to drown. Yeah, he's got, he's going he's sure. to, he is, he is going to drown. And he is going to hit the ground incredibly hard because he's got this Looney Tunes 21-point money bag attached to him. 
And a lot of people say, did he lose the money? And my other props are these. This is the, the actual, this is the front reserve. And I have it open. I actually have it hmm. open because what I want to do is I want to see how much strength is required to rip these cards. And these are nearly 60 years old and they're incredibly strong. Like there is no way you're going to rip them. And, like you can't. I don't think he lost the money. I think it was tied to him. He fell in the water and it weighed him down. That's a counterweight. So irregardless, if he lands on land, he's popping a, a knee, at least if he's lucky. Yeah. You know, and if he lands in the water, he's got all of these lines around him from the backpack that he can't get out of with all the crap tied to him. So if people say, well, where's all this stuff? You know, he tied all the crap to himself mm -hmm. and was weighed down and swept away. And guess where the money turned up? Near water. Now, we're not going to, let's not get into Tina Bar, no English, whatever. No, oh, why not, dude? Right. Come on. <laughs> no. Because, I mean, it doesn't, like, for the, for the, the live door die topic. Coward. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think the money washed yep. up. I think the money washed up. I mean, yes, there's spring diatoms on the money, but I don't know an awful lot about diatoms or whatever else. But there could have been winter diatoms on them. They could have died off or faded with time. A new exposure to water from the the washed up money that was buried over naturally could have got spring diatoms on them at a later date and then not been exposed to the water again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I, I, as far as, of... as, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jude. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, as, so as far as the, the man being dead, even Larry Carr nailed it at CooperCon, where he said that this man had just about enough knowledge to be, to be a danger to himself and others. And I think that's absolutely correct. Where let's, let's look at it. Let's look at the people who were the closest to the information and the closest to the case at the time. Farrell, Hamelsbach, even getting up to Larry Carr, Thomas Spangler, who calculated the drift, and calculated him in the water. The main investigatory yeah. team had no faith that this man just walked away, seemingly. Where I, 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 I have trouble buying that they said that he probably died. Because if they really believed that he lived, their messaging would be very, very different. They'd be like, there is literally a bomber on the loose and you need yeah. to keep your eye out and keep your doors locked at night. Well, I mean, they they bet they ran that tightrope a little bit. You know, they they did. I mean, every every single FBI document you see says armed and dangerous on it on Cooper. I mean, every every single one has, has the stamp armed and dangerous. So, I mean, they they were aware of that. And like I said, Himmelsbach, you know, his opinion is I, I don't know. All I know is that they they put if you read the FBI files, they are attacking it as if he's alive. You know, it's a manhunt, especially when we have Manning himself, Thomas Manning, who was the FBI agent who led the ground search. We have him stating, hey, it's basically he, he throws in the towel in 73. He says, we found nothing of this guy. So it's our belief that he that there's no indication that his parachute did not open and that he escaped. I mean, there is an FBI document where he says that. Now, now I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to Chris. What were you going to say earlier? Well, I was just going to, I was actually going to echo what Jude said um, uh, about the fact of Cooper being a villain. And I mean, I've on record yeah. stating the same thing. I, I did my, I, 
episode with with uh, Darren Schaefer on on the Cooper Vortex, and um, you know, I literally called Cooper a villain and hoped yeah. he died. <laughs> yeah, right. I remember that. So you know, and I got I got some heat from that because there right. are Cooper aficionados who you know, kind of. There's a little bit of cult worship around the guy, but yeah, yeah. the guy is a criminal and he he terrorized people. And we can try to minimize the impact by saying, well, nobody got hurt. But um, you know, I think that's I think that's a, a but they could have disingenuous. So yeah, because they could have. Yeah, Cooper was a villain. He's a bad guy. That said, I think I think it's important to recognize that. I think that's the reason that a lot of people in this in this case, amateur researchers believe that he lived is because they have uh, an affinity for the guy. Sure, um, you know they they have they have some affection for the guy, and they see him as this lovable rogue, this Han Solo in a business suit, as you've described him. Um, you know where he's you know given the little wink and a wave to Tina as he right. gallantly leaps out the back. Sure. And um, I, I think that's a, a mischaracterization of the guy. But I think that that characterization of him as this lovable rogue who got one over on the man makes people want to root for him, makes people want him to have lived. And um, so in their minds, that Hollywood ending um, ends up with Cooper landing safely and walking off into the sunset. Sure. And. So as a result, that's where they begin their premise of him living is because they don't want to see the they don't want to see the guy dead. You know, they don't want to see him disarticulate into the. They don't want to see Robin Hood impaled on a spear. Yeah, by right. some English, you know, knight. You know? Yeah, they don't want to see it's... Kylo Ren stabbing Han Solo in the chest. So right, you know, they they it's it's you know so I think that there's um. A kind of a, a bias there um, in terms of in terms of the good. And I, to put and I don't hold it, and I don't think Jude holds it because I think Cooper's a bad guy, he's a villain. No, I mean, look, I've been on that's kind of a crusade I've been on lately too. All three of us kind of feel that way. I've been on that crusade too by saying, as I explained to people, I said, try to imagine yourself doing this. Like, not no games, no. This isn't like funny, cute. Try to literally imagine you your life right now tomorrow you go onto a commercial airliner with a fake bomb. Yep. Like, that is not normal. That is yep. not even remotely normal. This man was prepared to die that day and to bring others with him. And we know this, that other hijackers at the time period, it was really a crapshoot whether the FBI was going to play around or whether they were going to storm the plane. And multiple people died during, during Cooper copycat hijackings, not just the hijacker. Passengers were killed. You know, people were wounded. And the 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 day after, or the week after McNally's hijacking, there was a copycat attempt in San Francisco with two guys who were trying to do this. And the FBI said enough of this because they were just sick of it because McNally was still on the loose at the time. They said, "Oh no, no, we're not doing this crap again." They ran onto the back of the plane and had a gun battle down the aisles. Killed both hijackers. Pilot got shot. Uh, a train conductor who was on the who was on there. A retired man was killed. A passenger was killed. A pilot was shot. Uh, the I forget his name, but one of the actors from the TV show Bonanza was shot in the back, and he lived. But it was and both hijackers were killed. So yeah, it was that the FBI stuck a shotgun in through the window and blew his brain. That's right. Correct. So yeah, yeah. yep, that was uh, Merlin St. George. Yeah, so, it's know, just yeah, I agree. There's there. I think anybody who really delves deep into this case, you you may begin yeah. the case with some affinity for the guy. But I think yeah. once you really kind of um, experience the case through research, you, you, your, your heart should change a little bit. 
Um, the other thing that I wanted to say is um, Jude made a good point in terms of the Cooper's survival begins and ends with the parachutes. And any discussion of his survival or not begins yeah. with the parachutes because that was his getaway car. I mean, this was a bank robbery in air, and it's, you know, this is the parachutes were his getaway car. So, right. um, and, and I think we've determined, you know, to a certain degree that he had a choice between, you know, a, a Dodge Charger and, uh, you know, a U-Haul truck. And he chose the U-Haul truck. Um, I, and maybe that's not a fair comparison, but I think that's well that's generally what we're looking at. He chose the yeah. getaway car. Well, and, and let me explain this to people. If anybody's watching this, what, what we mean by that is that when we say this, we're not saying the old misnomer about he did not choose the skydiving rig. Yeah, see, that's people. a lot of people still think that. Even Larry Carr, to my surprise, um, in a recent article, still said that. And he's helping me. He's helping me with my book. And I've certainly sent him, you know, the information about the parachutes. We know now that there was no skydiving rig. It was a, in fact, the one he didn't take was a, actually a World War II vintage. And it's in the museum now. And so he chose a newer parachute, but it was a smaller canopy. But it is, to point out, though, the 24-foot canopy is what most all of our guys in World War II jumped with. All, they had 24-foot reserves. Is basically what it was. Is these were 24-footers are for reserves. So what Cooper just, Cooper jumped with a reserve parachute, essentially, but it was on his back. I guess that's the way to say it. And he did, yeah. A 26-footer would have been a better choice and we do believe now through some research that cooper did look at the packing cards he did look and see what the parachutes were and for whatever reason he chose a 24 he, he looked at him and saw a 24 foot and a 26 foot and chose a 26 and chose a 24 foot canopy now some i've heard some people say well you will descend a lot faster in a 24 and that the guys in vietnam for example Mac Visog guys wanted a smaller canopy to get down to the ground faster. Now, these were professional skydivers or professional military parachutists, I'd say. So whether Cooper was that level, but they wanted because it, they would come down quicker. They weren't in the air as long. And that was their goal was to not be in the air very long because these were it, because it, because these guys were doing halo jumps, you know, you know low opening you know, jumps. So they wanted to get come down as quickly as possible to not be seen or shot at. But. Cooper, yeah, so that's the thing is, but let's get into that. So the parachutes is that for him to die, though, to die as, as opposed to, I don't know of anyone, Jude, maybe you've done the research, but under an open canopy, hitting the ground so hard you die, I don't know of any cases like that. I mean, you might be broken bones for sure, injured pretty terribly probably, but Can I, yeah. I'll, I want to take the opportunity to take something else off the table for the conversation is that nobody will ever convince me that Cooper was a no pull because one of the very few actions that Cooper was, that he definitely did, that's inarguable, and there's very few, is that he pulled open a parachute. He pulled open the front reserve on the flight. So he did, I mean, as far as, as this, this, you know, he pulls this handle here, right? And what's cool about these is that these can open in a spin, and if you're falling, aft and down. So you don't need to be belly to earth for these to open. That's And I mean, that's why Norm Hayden had one. So basically someone who had no concept of a belly to earth free fall could, could open up this parachute and it would open flat, level, evenly, and without line twists. 
So there is no way that this guy didn't open this because what he could have done, although trying to take the line out of the front reserve, was he was testing the tension of the rip cord because from the packing cards, they were packed by the same guy. And I mean, different riggers will rig different things differently. They might have looser pilot chutes. They might have, you know, cape wells that are slightly higher up because these are completely adjustable. So it, mm-hmm. for him to do that is somehow logical to give him a tiny bit of uh, credit. But don't forget, Cooper was on his own. So bomber crews jumping out, those front reserves were basically marketed as, look, this is better than being dead. You'll pop a leg, but you'll have other guys that land near you that can carry you to safety if they somehow miraculously make it to the ground. Or there will be backup somewhere that can be radioed to come and rescue you. This guy yeah. was completely on his own. Completely on his own yeah. and weighed down. Now, often now, I can be corrected on this, but in a bailout situation, they only took themselves and the parachute. They didn't take their belly bags or backpacks or radios or anything. Oh hell no, no! They were just trying to get the hell out of. No, there was. I mean, if they even got out, I mean, that's the thing about bomber crews. The they found they found out that the centrifugal force of the bombers going down was usually enough to keep guys pinned in there until they hit the ground. So if they even had a chance to get out. Then it was it was like that. Yeah, I've I've likened the reserves to or the twenty four foot canopy. I was talking to a our skydiver extraordinaire Mark Meltzer about this, and really the the twenty six foot canopy is a good canopy, good size. It's fine. You know, twenty eight foot is ideal, obviously. But it's almost like, would you rather if you were on a sinking ship in the ocean, would you rather have a lifeboat or a life jacket? And obviously, you want to be in the lifeboat, but the life jacket's not going to kill you either. It's it might it might make it more dangerous for you for sure, but it's going to be uncomfortable, and you might get, you know, what, being in the water might 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 kill you from exposure or something. But it's better than nothing, obviously. So, but it's not the life jacket. But it's not. But it's not. It's not the lifeboat. At CooperCon, Larry Carr said that um, Mouse told him that he provided the 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 shoot that he provided um hayden had a modified ripcord that it had been moved from one side to the i think it was moved from the right to the left and it was yeah. over the shoulder instead of under i think correct me if i'm wrong on that uh, but anyways it was modified from how it normally is people have given um given him a lot of crap for being less than honest pushed back on that at CooperCon and said yeah he was not honest with you guys because he hated you guys and he hated the media but he said he was always a straight shooter with me and i never felt that he was being disingenuous so if that's true and cooper actually jumped with a modified rig where the ripcord wasn't where it was supposed to be i would say that there if that's if that's true then Cooper could have gotten into a situation where he's jumping out of that aircraft at night and he's free falling and he goes to pull that ripcord and it's not there. And he's fumbling around looking for that ripcord and, you know, time runs out or he ends up in a spin and ends up, you know, uh, hitting the ground. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit. I know Jude, you have, obviously Brian, you have knowledge of the 302s and the, and the parachutes in general. And then Jude, I know that you actually have, one of those and you've, you know, whatever. So if you guys could each kind of talk about the quote unquote modified shoot 
um, that uh, that Mouse has talked about. And if, so, what does record? Is it, is it possible? Is could that be an explanation for his for his demise? Technically speaking, the the record for the main parachute is almost always on the right side. So, Cosi moving it to this side. Is logical because this is a pilot's rig which didn't have a front reserve always attached. This actually has the seat still on it. So having the rip cord here because what the Cooper's front reserve parachute, if because that, that's what they were jumping with at Skydive Asaqua. They were jumping with backpacks very similar, if not identical, to these and those front reserve parachutes. Now, if you look, Ryan, at your two up there, with this shit and your front. The rip cords are on the same side. Obviously, that can't happen. So what the fronts, because it's not a backpack and it's attached to the main container, the rip cords on the front can't be moved, but on these, they can. So it being moved to the other side makes perfect sense. Okay. Well, so, I, but I would say that, yeah, I guess it does make sense, but I would argue that it's almost like getting in a car and not knowing where the, you know, where drive is or something, you know, like where the gear shift is, because, I mean, if I'm Cooper, I'm going to look at my rig and know, I mean, the first thing I'm going to do is, is you know, know where my freaking ripcord is. You know, I mean, that's just like your survival. That is your death. I mean, you know, so I don't know why he would have jumped without knowing at least where his ripcord was or checking it. And, you know, and then some people speculate that he would have even pulled, that uh, he would have even pulled on the stairs and squitted out. That's um, several skydivers have said that, that if he was actually experienced at that, that he would have, or as I know Dave Fugman always talks about, he's, you know, Dave is a skydiver, that that he would have jumped. Dave said, if it was me, I'm jumping with my hand already on the ripcord. Just yeah. like, just I'm just ready to go because I'm not taking any chances. Not that he could have done anything anyway because he had no reserve with him. Anyway. So, but still, just to be safe, you're going to open as soon as you can. So that I would think. brings up another point and then segues into a different aspect of this is Cooper's experience as a skydiver um, and whether or not he was a paratrooper or smoke jumper or whether he was a total woofo as they call him totally not a novice at this and um, there's evidence obviously both ways as it is with many aspects of this case but I think one of the things that points to Cooper being a novice is the fact that he did not um, bring his own equipment. He didn't bring his own rig. And, and people have pushed back on this, and, and, and perhaps they're right, is the fact that he expected the shoots from McCord, which would be Air Force shoots, but then he received Navy shoots, and he didn't seem to care or notice. Now, it, it seems in talking with some people that the, that the difference between those two are virtually indistinguishable. I don't know. I've never seen an Air Force shoot compared to a Navy one. But... Um, it, it, the fact that he did not choose his own, bring his own rig um, or demand a specific type of rig indicates to me that he was not a very experienced skydiver. Would, would the two of you agree with that? And if not, why yeah. not? I would say Cooper was a pre-A license jumper. He'd done a few. He didn't have enough to pass what the 70, the early 70s version of what the AFF would be now. Um, def, most Definitely not. He knew what packing cards were. And I'm just going to latch on to a couple of comments. Um, because there's all of this old Cooper could have been a, a World War II paratrooper or, you know, this Ted Braden, you know, cool badass, was able to land on the ground like Mary Poppins. 
whether Cooper was Ted Braden or not, which he wasn't, paratrooper or not, they can't defy Newtonian gravity. He had a heavy load of money strapped to his front and a bomb and a tall man around 5'10 on a small canopy, paratrooper or not, paratroopers' limbs aren't stronger than the average person's, especially when they're wearing what were probably just normal walking shoes. So paratrooper or not is not going to affect the survivability of this descent because of the amount of load under the small canopy where the, the skydivers brought their own stuff. McCoy, our favorite good little Mormon kid, brought his own parachute. Rob, he, yeah. who, was a, who was a competition parachutist and I think wingsuiter, brought his own stuff. And as and even kind of, I, I want to look back very quickly to Cossie. I mean, Cossie was very well known as a rigger parachutist, you know, wingsuiter, wingsuit designer and everything else. I, I think with the 302s and the stuff that he gave to the FBI is all genuine. Now, all the, the remodels, and the fixings that he did for the Cooper parachutes, to me, were all explainable and, and made perfect, perfect sense. But I, I just cannot see in any way with what we know he jumped with that he came out the other side of it without a popped leg or just landing in the water. And I just want to get into a comment as well is about a floating parachute. Parachutes don't float. If you have to cut away a canopy and it lands in the water, it's gone. Parachutes do not float. Main canopy rigs do not float. Yeah, I, I, there's no, I don't think there's any doubt at this point that Cooper was not, he was not a recreational skydiver in the sense that he did not do it enough to own his own gear, at least. No. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he is somebody who would have had a few free falls in his life. That wouldn't surprise me that he had somebody who had done it a few times just for a lark. Um, you know, my current profile of Cooper is a guy who flew Cessnas or small planes. And those kind of guys hang around airfields and they may have been taken up by a friend who wanted them to skydive or something like that. They may have had a few free falls, but not enough to own their own equipment. No. So certainly not to have a log book and things like that. But the thing about the parachute, uh, so, but again, my thing is, He's not going to be dying on impact unless oh. I just, so either he's a no pull, which why would he no pull? That, that's my concern is, is that why would he no pulls? I looked it up. I, I wish I had the stat in front of me, but it was something like of the, I don't know how many million skydive jumps there were in the past 20 years. It was like seven no pulls and, and those were contributed and, and they were either suicides or, or they were, or they had heart attacks, I think. You know, they had a medical condition of some sort. So there's no reason to think he would not have. And even spinning, even spinning out of control, we have to remember that that specific parachute rig he jumped with is an emergency parachute rig to be, to, it's designed to open when you're spinning out of control. You know, airmen are not skydivers that, you know, they don't know how to arch their back and do all that sort of stuff. So they're just free falling in, in a panic, really. So that's why they open like that. And, and reserves are the same way too, that they're designed to just open up. That's why McNally was able to survive, even though he was spinning out of control and he opened up. So I, I, I don't, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I was just going to say um, in terms of the no poll, I'll call back to, to Mark, Mark Metzler and his comment. And I've, and I've parroted this before, but you know, Mark has stated um, that 
when you jump out of an aircraft at night um, and you go and you go into a spin, um, it, it's much harder to come out of a spin in darkness with no visual references than it is on a clear day. So and you go into a spin and you go into a tumble and you lose consciousness. It's certainly possible that you hit the ground before you come to um, statistics aside. It's possible. Um, and in fact, Mark has has said that it's happened to him. And we know that it happened to Marty McNally. Now, Marty McNally says he doesn't even know how he came and, and that chute deployed because he mm -hmm. blacked out. Right. Um, yeah. He has no recollection of it. So uh, and I think that when we start looking at skydiving statistics and fatality statistics, I would agree 100 percent that skydiving by and large is a very, very safe activity. Um, and um, but it's not like any other, you know, extreme activity. It's not completely non-lethal. You know, people do right. die doing it. Um, yeah, it's about 40. I, I believe you have. I've looked it up from 10,000 feet. You had about four. I think it's 45 seconds. I think you can free fall for about 45 to, to a minute. The, the other thing that we have to keep in mind here is that when people skydive, Jude, for example, when he goes up into an aircraft and he's jumping, it's typically nice weather. It's from a very stable aircraft. It's during the day. He's got a helmet. He's got boots. He's got gloves. He's got, you know, his jumpsuit. He's got an altimeter. He, you know, he's it, it's, the reason skydiving is such a safe activity is because safety is such a high priority for skydivers. Um, he's jumping with his own rig. He's jumping over a DZ that he knows. All of those things are true. None of those things were true with Cooper. So you keep compounding risk. It's a night jump. It's from the back of a 727 going much faster than a typical, uh, you know, uh, Cessna or Piper would be. He's got no equipment. He's jumping with an inferior chute. He's jumping into cold, wet weather. He's jumping over uh, terrain that he doesn't know, doesn't know the uh, the the um, elevation, doesn't know the terrain, um, it, no boots, no gloves, no helmet, no altimeter. All of these things continue to compound and add risk. Now, are they? Does that mean that they're indicative that he died? No, there's not. There's no guarantees, but there's a reason that skydivers jump the way that they jump, and it's to eliminate risk and what. The, the Cooper jump did not eliminate any risk. It was a very risky jump. And while it may have been survivable, any skydiver worth his salt will tell you, yeah, that was a risky jump. That was a ballsy jump. It was. It was a very ballsy jump. But I would love to have no pull taken off the table. The guy opened the parachute. I would find it extraordinary if he just slammed under the water or slammed under land. And I... I, I think it's just because we know he opened one on the flight. Why would we ever assume that he didn't open the second? At the moment when it really mattered, where he had he had the money, he was away, he'd left the aircraft. Uh, why would he not pull it? Uh, I guess my question to you, Jude, is 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 the rip cord on a dummy dummy shoot the same as it would be on a on a on a back rig? In other words. You can go and look and find and pull it on a on a front, right? I mean, so like, like on the on the front, like well, I, mean, I, I don't know. Are I don't we know talking about the back rig that he that he 
Hayden's no, the, no, sure, sure, sure. He used the front to tie the, the money to himself. No, I, I, he's saying, he's saying, he's saying, he's saying, is the ripcord the same on a front as it is on the back? Yeah. In other words, is it the same handle? Just pull. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, just pull. Close enough. I mean, close enough. They're 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 not they're not too dissimilar. And I mean, he's going to go out like this. He's probably going to step. Well, I, there's this lovely notion that he jumped off. He probably fell or stepped off the aircraft, where he probably just fell off like this geeky old man. Just, oh! right. Yeah, he wasn't Geronimoing off the back of it. It's no, you know, <sighs> Geronimo. No, yeah, yeah. That's one of those things. It's one of the myths that we have about Cooper that I really enjoyed. It's one thing that when when I began to speak with McNally on the phone last year, and I began to talk to him. It was really fascinating to hear him say that he crawled down the stairs on his butt and then turned around like a little kid on a jungle gym and was hanging on, you know, terrified. And so we have this image of Cooper, you know, as you made a TikTok, Jude, of Cooper smoking a cigarette and jumping off, you know, balls hanging to the ground, you know, you know that sort of thing. But for all we know, Cooper was crawling down the stairs. The same way that Mac was. I, I think that's another argument for Cooper not being a military parachutist because, you know, whenever Uncle Sam opens the door, what do you do? You jump out immediately. You're gone. You're out of there. You don't sit and look down and assess the height. I mean, the, the air stair indicator went on at what, 7.42, Ryan, and he didn't go for 30 minutes. I mean, that's not how Uncle Sam trained his men. As soon as that door no. was open, he was gone. And that's, sure. I mean, that for me is enough to take Braden out of the question and these, and Barb and these paratroopers well, and, Kenny and everybody else. And I was going to back up and talk about the, the thing about the, him jumping, you know, we don't know what he looks like when he jumped too. That's something else that we have to remember is that whenever people discuss him jumping with no supplies, we don't know what he had in his bag, whatever he had in the mystery bag which was big enough. I mean, it was, it was as big as it was as long as at least as long as the briefcase is how it was described. And it was about four inches tall. So, I mean, it's, you know, briefcase size bag, apparently whatever he had in there was not used in the actual hijacking. So whatever was in there was to be used exclusively for the getaway or his jump. So it could have been goggles, gloves, a beanie, you know, whatever, things like that. I don't think it was boots. Um, you know, he would have put that on. I, Cooper would have had no reason not to have already been wearing boots, for one thing, or to have put them on at some point while he was waiting. You know, who cares if the stewardesses see him put boots on? It doesn't matter. He wouldn't care about that. So, while, you know, so I don't think so. I do think that the way Tina saw him was the way he was dressed. The way Tina saw him last was the way that he was dressed when he jumped. But he could have easily put gloves on. You know, his bag was not open yet. So whatever was in there. Um, so I want to transition here and think about if he dies on land, then that does not explain the Tina bar. It, it, that makes it even way more complicated because you have to assume that somebody came upon his dead body and pillaged it or something, you know, to come up with some scenario like that, which just isn't, I don't buy that at all. So the only way I have him dying that night and not being found, knowing where we know he jumped now, or knowing roughly where he jumped, which is actually, we originally thought he jumped, 
in on near the border of Clark and Cowlitz counties, which is up near Ariel. That's where the FBI originally thought. We have since moved it further south to, you know, Chris has Vancouver, I would say somewhere between orchards and battleground area. It's certainly later, at least five to 10 miles later, further south. So you do get him closer to the river. He's not going to go in Lake Merlin for one thing. That's, that's out of the question. That's where Spangler had him landing. But that was based on the 811 jump time, which we know that's not true. So he's going later. So the only way I see him dying is him dying by landing in the river somehow. But here's the thing. Let's just think about this. I'm going to pull up Chris's map here that he made. Um, there we go. So this is this is Chris Cunningham's timeline map here. It's it's your map there, Chris, with as you can see there with the times on it. So the thing about this is that for him, if you look at round work, roughly about 816 is where they're over the river. Maybe a little, a tiny smidge north of 816 is where the river is. The river is kind of hard to see on that map. It's not very big. The river's not very wide. But it's about 816. So the only way for him to land in the river at all, to me, is because I can't. I have a hard time having him still being on the aircraft at 815. But if I'm going to pretend that he's still on there at 816, then the only way he lands in the river is is as a no pull, because if he because the way the winds were blowing, which were two miles, you know, they speculated that if he opened at 10,000 feet, he's going to drift to the northeast. I believe Chris is that right? About two and a half, two, maybe yeah. two to three miles. I think northeast. I think the maximum was a four mile drift. Right, and so depending on when he deployed the shoot, if he deployed the shoot early. Yeah, almost immediately after after departure, he would have drifted about four miles. Four nautical. So to drift into the river would have him jumping at like eight 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 seventeen or something like that, and and that's that's really they're over Portland Airport at that point. I can't see that. So the only way I get him into the river at all is as is as a no pull, just plummeting at eight sixteen. And as you've had you and I've had this debate for years over over a year now that. I have a hard time picturing any guy jumping over a city. Now, I know it's cloudy, but this is a city of, even at the time, was half a million people. That's lit up. You know, I don't care how, how heavy the clouds are. You know, that's going to be, he's going to see that. So while we don't have any other hijackers jumping over major cities, because that's a recipe for landing, you know, landing on top of a cop car at a four-way stop. You know, that's not what you want you know, at all. So I don't see, I can't imagine him you know, look, purposely looking down and saying, oh, yeah, this is where I'm going to jump. I see a huge, huge-ass city down there. And he's going to know that's Portland. There's no other big cities until you get, until you get to California, south of Seattle. So he, he's not stupid. I mean, he clearly knew what McCord was. He knew Tacoma. I mean, he knew cities. I mean, he knew geography enough to know that this is going to be Portland. So I yeah. don't know why he would jump right over Portland. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think that um... – the only way a water landing happens is if he jumps way farther south, like you said, over Portland and drifts into the water. Or if he no pulls and ends up straight into the water, like about 8, 15, 30. The problem with that is <clears throat> Tom's research with the diatoms, the money did not get wet um, the night of the hijacking. I, I haven't seen anything to dis dispute that. So the fact of the matter is that the money was dry until spring, early summer. 
um, which indicates that the money, at the very least, ended up on land. But for the money to end up on land and Cooper to end up in the water almost beggars the imagination. Um, I, I, I simply don't see a scenario in which that happens. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't think Cooper ended up in the Columbia River that night. I, I just I, I don't see a way to square to square that. Um, OK, so, Jude, you can you can go ahead and tell me I'm full of it. But um, I, I, uh, I don't that's possible. You're not full of it. You're, you're, you're thinking somewhat logically. And I'll tell you why. Whenever people are talking about these winds when it comes to skydiving, you're talking about the wind blowing a feather. Right. Now, that is a weightless, almost very light object that the wind can carry quite easily. Now, if you put a feather out the back of a 727, yes, it will drift north, uh, you know, northeasterly. But we're talking about a guy underneath a parachute with a bag of money. But, 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 but that was worked into it, Jude. You know, our, our, our guy, Jim Hancock, the husband of stewardess Alice Hancock, he's the one who calculated that. He's a skydiver, so... His calculations and Spangler's not stupid. Spangler is the one who had him drifting two or three miles, in, you know, to the northeast. So I mean, I think that's already baked into it. That, well, that, that he, but Ryan, let me, and I don't mean to cut you off, Jude, because I do want you to finish your thought. So hold that. But I will say that Doctor Robert Edwards had an interesting take on the winds, and in his book, um, he talks about how he felt that rather than the winds taking someone directly to the northeast. He, on the other hand, believes that there is a great possibility that the winds were actually swirling that night. And instead of a uh, kind of a, a, a diagonal trapezoid uh, in terms of a drop zone, it should look more like a like a circle with a diminished with an increasing probability um, where he's actually swirling. The wind is taking him and swirling him from uh, his departure point up toward kind of and around. Um, in the opposite direction. Now, he's received a lot of criticism from that, a lot of pushback, um, but it's an interesting idea, at least, you know, where if Cooper's under under canopy, is he going to go in a straight line directly to the northeast, or is there going to be some type of give? Now, that said, even if there's some type of give where he's, you know, drunk driving all over the sky before he lands, it's still in a northeasterly direction. I, I don't see a scenario in which the winds turn and blow him to the southwest in the direction of the river. But Jude, I did cut you off and I want to let you finish your thoughts. So go ahead, please. So let's say, now, what, how parachutes are designed. Now you're talking about Cooper being blown. The way parachutes, even round ones, are designed to land is forward. So if Cooper's facing forward, even in a northwesterly wind, it'll just stop him going north. You, you will never be blown backwards in a parachute. That doesn't happen. So he's going to go forward. He's not going to find himself being like, oh, crap, I'm being blown backwards. That doesn't happen. So if he's two miles up under that long drift, now if you apply Spangler's teardrop to an 815 exit, where does the teardrop put him? It puts him in the water. No, it does not. No, it no, does no, put no, him in the water. No, no, no. The, the plane's going no. this way. The plane's going south. If he yeah. jumps, it, it, he's going to open the case. He's going that direction. You just said he. I mean, you just said you don't. You just said that you don't go backwards. The plane's no. going that way. The plane's going south. He's not going south. When he jumps, he, he's going north. He's falling north. He's falling north. So he's going to go north. You know, under your not necessarily. But you just said you just said you don't go backwards. So no, you don't. 
But re relative to the aircraft, I think you confused yourself. He can drift the same direction as it under canopy, facing forward. Because even though it can't steer, he can turn himself. Well, he you, can turn. You bring up an interesting point because, and correct me if I'm wrong. And again, you guys are the parachute experts. I'm not. These particular parachutes were what were called four line release, right? So you couldn't, unlike, for example, a, a sport parachute where you can kind of steer, right? And go yeah. in different directions and steer around. These did not have that capability, right? You were no, at the mercy of steerable. So, however, I think the proper term is four line release. Again, I'm not the, I'm not the expert here. And, and what basically the way that worked to the best of my knowledge is that you would grab the shroud lines and you'd kind of pull them in a certain way yes. where you would not direct yourself in, in like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to steer, but the idea was that you would turn yourself into the wind yes. so yeah. that if you were put pulled, pushed by the wind, instead of, going with the wind and hitting the ground at 25, 30 miles an hour, you'd be going into the wind, which would slow your speed and you would have a much softer landing. So if yeah, they're Cooper, was risers, is what yeah, Cooper was aware of this, he would have been able to adjust himself and direct himself into the wind so that he wouldn't have had as much of a drift and his landing would have been much softer. I don't know if that would be able to direct him southward or southwesterly. Yes. It definitely can. He can turn on these. Now, steerable, that maneuverability, he can turn himself around. Because even as a recreational skydiver or anything, he is going to go into the wind. How do you tell if you're going into the wind? It hits you in the face. If you are under your canopy and you don't feel wind in your face, turn around. Hard, toggle, go around, feel wind in your face and you're fine. His face was probably working if he didn't black out. So he's going to turn into the direction of the wind, which is blowing upward. And then he's going to look down and think, oh, shit, I'm going into the wind. But what's under my feet? Water. <laughs> uh, see, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I have to take what the experts, Spangler and, I mean, Spangler was, I have to take what the experts, Spangler and Jim Hancock, both have him drifting that direction. They, they, especially if he had no way to, to, to steer they're like, he's just yeah. trapped by the winds. I, I have a hard time buying into a water landing myself just because of the diatoms, just because of the direction um, that the wind was blowing. Um, it, it, but wind is a weird thing, man. And weather is a weird thing. And yeah. winds shift, winds change. And if you look at the winds that night, they were shifting. Uh, even between 7 and 9 p.m., they were shifting. Um, in fact, I think Spangler told me that they were, you know, to the best of his knowledge at around the jump time, they were blowing directly to the West. But regardless, if you look at the winds, they were shifting, um, you know, back and forth. So I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there's a, a you know, some type of, um, situation where he jumps but, at, but this whole, but this whole conversation goes to my point about how I cannot put this guy in the water. I don't know how, I don't know how to put him in the Columbia river. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I agree with you. I don't think he ended up in the water. Chris, so how do you, if you think he more than likely died, then where is he? Well, I don't have the money. <laughs> but well, I'm just saying. Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. If he landed on the ground, let's say he let's say he pulled at um, orchards. Okay, he jumped over orchards. Okay. Um, successfully deployed the parachute. Canopy opens. He's good but he's 
coming at the ground fast and he hits the ground at 20 25 miles an hour right breaks a leg okay that's not the wilderness and you know that that area southwestern washington there near vancouver northeast and north of vancouver it's not it's not the yukon it's farmlands small towns um little homesteads that it, it, it it's relatively flat it's not it's not in the middle of nowhere um so even if he shattered his leg um he's getting out of there you know um somehow and if he doesn't get out of there let's say he's got a compound fracture and his thigh bone sticking through his skin and he's bleed and he bleeds out and dies he's getting found by somebody you know um somebody's gonna find him it's not a it's not it's a rural area but it's not remote I guess is what and I'm consider saying. the parachute too. If he let's just say he is injured on impact somehow and bleeds out, his parachute deployed. That's a big old thing that's flapping around for years, perhaps. I mean, you know, that's going to be found. It's a huge flag. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, that's just it. Is like you said, that's one of the great misnomers of this case. I mean, Cooper jumps into a county of almost two hundred thousand people at the time. And, and, and even more now, it's, you know, almost a million people in the county now. So I that's the thing about now. Again, I will always point out that a boy went missing the same month as Cooper in roughly the same area. Essentially, he was near Cougar, which is a little east of there, but he was still in the in the same county, at least. Uh, he went missing he was a hunter. He was 15 years old. James Annis was his name. He went missing and the same month as Cooper was hijacking. And during the search the next year, during a, during literally a year later, his uh, a hunter found his rifle and then found like a, a femur or something. And that was it. Like, and they, they knew it was him because of something. I don't know how they did it, but they found like a femur and some rib bones. So in a year's time, they didn't find clothing. So in a year's time, a 15 year old a body in the woods was completely torn asunder like yeah. as in like barely even found yeah i talked here. with tom voigt um who's um well known in in for his website zodiackkiller.com he's a zodiac expert and he was at coopercon and i sat and chatted with him for a long time he's a pacific northwest resident in fact he lives on the columbia river um and he says that bodies in that particular climate in that particular area decompose exceptionally fast um and uh disappear exceptionally fast in that particular environment so if that who happened to cooper i don't know uh, who knows but um right. it's certainly a possibility and so would, it, it, i guess to your larger point ryan i don't see cooper dying unless he's a no pull yeah. and um frankly i think no pull is is still a possibility just based on the um the possibility of the modified rig just based on the possibility of him going into a spin the night jump um you know all of those things i think added to the to the degree of difficulty um but again i've never jumped from an aircraft i've never parachuted i've never put on a parachute rig so um but if cooper died he died by going in directly hitting the ground and not pulling yeah. the parachute that's what I'm going to say too. I, I don't think that that, 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 and that, and that's why I lean on survival because I just feel like 
something. I mean, the, the Tina Barr money find in, in of itself, to me, people people say that indicates they died. I actually disagree. I think because of the diatoms, it indicates he lived and, and the money was found or something. What, Jude? I don't think it indicates anything about his survival. But Jude, stuff from the thing was found to be, have been in the river. Why would the money be in the river and the man not? Well, but, <laughs> like a, but, but it's got the diatoms, though. I, you no, know, I mean, let's connect dots here. I mean, yes, the spring diatoms were found on the money. But does that mean that winter diatoms were never on it? Yes. yes. Well, well, I mean, there was a... No! Yes. It, it does. Oh, it doesn't. There are none. Uh, Tom actually did a, uh, uh, what's it called? A control. And, and he soaked water in the river in November and it had an enormous amount of the winter diatoms on it. They don't just go away. They, they, but di they but diatom out. cycles aren't consistent. I mean, whether it depends on the temperature of the water, the time of the year. And Tom K did his experiment 40 years after the fact. We have a sad thing called global warming. The temperature of the Columbia River is higher. I mean, yes, as a test, it's, it's fair-ish. Now, I'm not going to say I'm a diatom or a molecular biologist, but the condition of the Columbia River is drastically different in 2011 when those exams were done in 1971. We don't know that, though. Yeah, I, I think actually yep, yep, the data yep. is available. I think the data is available, and they've tracked it, and I think it's remarkably consistent. I mean, Tom can Tom can speak to that better than I can. Um, but well, it, I would it, say, that, it, and again, Tom's paper, people ask the thing about Tom is people can say what they want about Tom, but that his diatom research was peer-reviewed and yeah. published in Nature magazine. In Nature. In the world. It's, yeah, it's, yeah not, world. it's not some backwater publication. No, right. So, <laughs> no. I have faith in that. I mean, as much as I don't, as much as me and Chris and others don't like it, it'd be it'd be so much easier for us to just accept that he died, because the if I mean I would love it for it to, for it to have winter diatoms on it. My God. Well, let's so easy. but let's 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 kind of segue into another thing here, and that's st st sticking on the topic of the money, is I think something that points to Cooper not surviving this is the fact that we have never found a Cooper bill in circulation. Um, it, we've never found a twenty. Never turned up. Now, I know people love to say, oh, well, you know, the Treasury Department, you know, never would have, you know, recorded the serial numbers and tellers weren't looking and this and that. But at the end of the day, we've never found a Cooper bill in the wild. Nobody's ever, you know, no. a Kmart in, you know, Delray Beach, Florida didn't say, hey, we found a Cooper 20. So, you know, if that was the case. Um, if Cooper survived and spent the money, I think it, I think it would have ended up in circulation, but that is a very, very controversial take and sure yeah. to piss a lot of people off. I wanted to know what you guys thought. I was going to say, can I, can I reverse engineer Cooper's survival from everything that you've said? Now, I thought my thing for tonight was that Chris and me as the dead camp, it was, you know, like kind of like me and Chris versus Ryan, but now it's turned to Chris and Ryan versus no, me. No, not at all. Yes, no. it has. You've sold out the dead camp. You've, you've, sold, you, you, you've sold out the camp. We will talk privately later. You shall be banished, and we will put the drawbridge <laughs> up on you. But let's let's engineer Cooper's survival. Okay, for everybody's hero. Okay, I, okay, your hero lived. Your hero picks a tiny canopy. Your hero is a geeky old man. Nobody who saw him or spoke to him or interacted with him in any way, shape, or format on the flight had a reasonable faith that the guy survived for a start. So he's under this tiny canopy, right? He lands on the ground. 
probably with a broken leg, miraculously gets everything that he had, the bomb, the parachute, everything else, for to alert someone who would not know where he was. Cooper certainly did not know where he was because the copycats who knew where they were, where their landing zones were told the pilots where to release them or where to be flying over or close to it. I know Rob Heady was put off by half a degree to the left, which put him a mile or two across a river. So, um, yeah, all of those things, landing on the ground, miraculously meeting up with his accomplice or, uh, you know, Karen or his Clara or whoever or his son or whoever, uh, had to miraculously find him in the middle of the night with a guy wearing a black suit who would be hard to see, uh, uninjured, and whisk him out of the area despite the roadblocks. And this went up as high as Hoover, who had his knickers very much in a twist, and everybody that was on this, and he was able to somehow scurry away hide forever with nobody knowing who he is, where he was, where he went, and what happened. There we go. Highlight. That all of those things need to happen for the guy to live. I'm going to highlight a, a thing that I like. One of our you Hoover Snickers. No, one of our one of our comments is W. I'll put his comment on there, and I'll read it for the podcast people. His comment says, "All the copycat hijackers survived, but they were all caught." The fact that one hijacker that was never caught suggests to me that he died. Had he lived, he would have been caught at some point. Well, yeah. I can speak to that, Ryan. In, in talking to Marty Andrade, and, and Marty's great when it comes to t- statistics and, and Bayesian analysis and all that stuff that I have mm-hmm. no understanding of. But I bow to his better knowledge on that sort of thing. And I asked him, I said, based on everything that you've seen right now, what would you put Cooper's percentage of survival at? And he said about 80, 82, 85%. Okay. Um, and I think he settled on 82, 80, 82. 80, 82 is what? Four out of five, right? So he's got a four out of five chance of surviving. Well, if we look at the copycats, there were about five copycats, maybe six. In order for that to be applied to those, if you apply 80% to those, and that means that one of them didn't, one of them wouldn't have to would have had to not survive because otherwise you'd get five out of five or six out of six surviving, right? That's a hundred percent. Marty says Cooper's chances are about 80%. So in my mind, in my feeble mathematical mind, that points to me that out of those copycats that include Cooper, those hijackers, one of them didn't make it. And we know the ones that did. So, um, you know, it would seem to me that if you're going to pull one of those guys out to not make it, it's probably going to be Cooper. You take into the fact that he's presumably a novice jumper. He's jumping, as far as we know, without any of the proper equipment over a DZ that he doesn't know, over terrain that he's not familiar with, um, with a an inferior parachute. Um and, uh, you know, all, all in, into poor weather, inclement weather, cold weather, um, it, it points to me, you add, start adding and compounding all of these aspects to him is that, boy, man, he was he was playing Russian roulette with that parachute, in my opinion. He was he, he was really playing games. It was either, you know, not something that I would do, not not a, not a risk that I would take myself, not even for one point three million dollars. But the money doesn't make any sense. The money being found just doesn't make sense. The only, I mean, you know, I, you know, if he dies on impact, somebody would have, somebody must have found the money somewhere or he got separated. I mean, I know that you and I, Chris, are on the same team as far as both you and I think he, live or die, lost the money. 
when he yeah oh, I, I don't think lost the money. successful. Yeah, no, I don't absolutely do not think that yeah. he's I don't, I don't buy stuff, no. I don't trust his MacGyvering skills enough to make that rig work. You know, we have an we have a good we have a good analog with Martin McNally losing the money. He yeah. did not prepare adequately for his well, if his belt had actually if this belt had actually been a proper belt, it actually would have uh, would have Twain. actually What's that? He said he used he but Uncle Mac he used well, Twain. You can't compare Twain to military strength paracord, which can hold three men. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, as McGuire, ninety minutes. He spent ninety minutes doing it. He meticulously tied that money to himself with arguably the strongest industrial cord okay, Jude, that was available well, in any but, market. But if he doesn't go in the water, but if he does does not go in the water, that it went in the water. It'll be explainable. Yeah. It'll be explainable. Eventually. So wait a minute. He went in the water. Everything on him went into the water. Can I get the copycats point away? Because sure. me and Mac had a good laugh um, at, at CooperCon whenever we were having beers. Because all this, the at least one item that was thrown from the back of the aircraft from all the other uh, copycats was recovered. Any stashed parachutes were found, and Max said, "And they found my cheesy ass wig." With his big, with his big laugh. But remember, but, but remember, but remember, they knew where all of those guys jumped. Okay, they didn't. They we, they did not know where Cooper jumped. In fact, they were wrong where Cooper jumped. So, well, they still had a might... fair idea. They 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 had they had a fair idea. It was only an act of domestic terrorism with a with an airplane. So they had a fair idea. Not NORAB were quite good at what they did. We're not going to reason, path, but they were good at what they did. They, but they, the general area where he was, and a parachute's big, and a bomb is easy to find with sniffer dogs. But um, we're talking about finding things in the DZ. For one thing, somebody mentioned earlier about the briefcase. I, I am firmly of the opinion, and I think most people are now that. And the FBI was that he he chunked it out at some point earlier um, when he first started going down the stairs, probably north of the Lewis River somewhere, which is the wilderness. And so you think he jumped just, with it, Jude? Absolutely. I, I think it makes perfect sense to jump with the bomb Whoa. for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons. Now I did a full live on it in Eric's house and the Facebook group. Number one, he has an attache case, which is quite good for transporting money other than the Looney Tunes money bag. So that's one thing. Keeping that attache yeah. case makes perfect sense. Now, we know he had a flick knife. That's a fact. He, he was seen cutting those lines off the parachute. But with dynamite, with a bomb or a bomb, he is a last stand option. So let's say he does the so long suckers and throws open and he looks down and there's a big ring of flashing lights that he's going to land in the middle of it. He's got a last stand because they're not going to snipe a bomber because if he's got a tilt sensor in the bomb, they can't shoot him. Because if he falls it's back and the bomb goes off, but it's a, it, it's I mean this logical, well planned hero that everybody thought it makes sense to take a bomb. He's got dynamite. He's got a weapon. He's still armed. He's still. Well, Cooper, I, I will point this out to people that that Cooper, I would, I would literally bet, I'd bet ten thousand dollars on this right, literally right now on a bet that Cooper had a pistol with him. Easy. I know this by all. No cookie would take that bet. All yeah, I'd agree with that. No bookie would take that bet. Literally all of them, even though, for example, so McNally, even if they didn't brandish it, we have two copycats who brandished pistols. That's Heineman and McCoy. Okay. Melvin Fisher 
when he got scared and didn't jump, he's our Melvin Fisher is our copycat who didn't jump. He got scared. He had the parachute on. He sat on the bottom of the stairs for like an hour and just couldn't get the courage to do it. Knocks on the door of the cockpit, hands them a pistol that they weren't even aware of. They go, oh, okay. Hands them a pistol they weren't aware of. McNally had a pistol with him that, that, that he did not use in the hijacking. He used his submachine gun. Okay. Richard LaPointe had a, was found with a pistol. Okay. So all of them, uh, Rob Hetty, actually, you know, Rob Hetty had a pistol too, uh, but he brandished his. So all of our copycats had pistols hidden or not hidden. So that I, Cooper probably had one in his, in his mystery bag because look, what if somebody calls your bluff on the bomb, right? Okay. Well, I've got something else. He had to have a contingency threat. You would agree with yeah. that, Chris? No. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, not just a threat to use on someone else, but on himself. On himself you know, too. If, if push came, if push came to shove, and he's in a corner, I think he, I think he's putting that gun to his head. Well, um, and he told Tina that he said, "I'm not being taken alive." I'm not being taken alive, right? Right. Yeah. So, so here's a, another scary thought for the Cooper hero. Let's say Bill, as Captain Scott, and Bill Radichak did not comply. I think you could take to the bank that Cooper flew a plane in his life with the IFR thing. You can take that to the bank that this, this guy flew a plane at some I'm point. I'm leaning that life. way for sure. I mean, no bookie will take a bet that Cooper had a pistol. He he must have. He must have had a pistol. How do we know that this guy wouldn't do the unspeakable and unthinkable and fly the plane himself? But how do we know this guy didn't have it in him? He could have. Well, then why didn't he? Why didn't he? Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, hey, if you can fly a 727, Art. if you're capable of flying a 727, then why not just kick the entire crew off and take off? And then jump out anywhere without the. Yeah, and then you could just you put the auto on auto on and jump out the back. Yeah, he could have um, done that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's a. I don't know what kind of argument that is, but I would say that I don't see any reason for him to take the briefcase. We know that the other guys, <clears throat> the other guys threw their stuff out too. McNally's briefcase was found. Actually, yeah, McNally's. Wait, was it? No, McNally's briefcase was not found. That's the one item that we talk about. How we when we say that Cooper's that Cooper's briefcase was not found. His machine gun was. His machine gun landed on an Air Force base, which is yeah. funny on a runway of an Air Force base. But and his pants slash trousers, pants, his clothes, his Man. clothes, which which they thought was blown off of the hijacker. But the, which is hilarious. But the the fact is, McNally's briefcase was tossed out over farm country, and they knew where he jumped too. So they know where Mac jumped, and it was in open farm country, and they still didn't find his uh, his briefcase. So if Cooper chunks his briefcase out over the woods, we have no hope of that. Well, here's here's the here's the thing too, is if Cooper jumps with his briefcase, he's jumping with the briefcase, he's jumping with the money bag. Um, he, you know, has all of these things. He's jumping with all of these things. He apparently, you know, if we're going to say he jumped with the briefcase and he jumped with his green bag too, you know, if he's jumping with all of these things, it, it, it again, complicates his jump and makes yeah. his jump more difficult. And one of the things that skydivers talk about all the time is symmetry. In order to have a successful jump, you have to be symmetrical. If you are asymmetrical in your jump, it will send you into a spin. So if he's got the money bag tied to his leg and he's holding on to the briefcase with his left hand 
and you know, all of these things that he is yeah. really putting himself in danger. And smoke jumpers and, and see smoke jumpers and paratroopers who have all this gear, they do static line jumps for that reason. Right. They don't do free falls. Exactly. Because right. they have all the gear. They need to open and that's up one of the reasons where, where people talk about, oh, Cooper must have been a paratrooper. Well, paratroopers didn't do free fall jumps. They were static line jumpers. So a it's like apples feet. and oranges. Uh, you know, I, and I'm sure paratroopers probably had some type of free fall training. Um, but not on Hazira for not, a matter of time period. No. Yeah, it, no. it's I, I, I really bristle at the idea that oh, well, he had to be a paratrooper. Not, no. not, I don't no, think so. No. Um, He's more of a pilot but it gets back to the idea of symmetry. And I know, Ryan, you have a, a really peculiar theory about um, Cooper not making it that if he didn't make it, th there's how, and it goes back to his configuration of how he had the money attached to himself. Oh, right. Now. Mac had it, correct me if I'm wrong, tied to his thigh. I just posted that. I just put that up yeah. there for folks to see that. There's Mac. He had it tied to his you, leg. You're of the belief that Cooper had it dangling between his legs, tied to his waist, right? Yes. Cooper almost, according to, according to Tina, the way that Cooper, if I can pull it up here, the way that Cooper was attired, Cooper looked like this. This is a, this is a drawing of, of, of how Cooper looked according to tina we just lost jude there's jude so this oh, no, I, I'm, I'm hiding myself so your image is more clear oh well that's not necessary but the uh that right there so everybody can see that's how tina described cooper she said that he had it, the it was tied around his waist and he had the bag on a tether a, a, a draw a drag bag they call it now paratroopers will use that because it helps them because it, it when it when the bag hits the ground before you do it takes weight off of your landing and it also lets you know where the ground is too. Uh, you know, a, 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 a second before you land, just so you, if you can't see the ground, the bags can hit first and you'll know that, Hey, I better brace, you know, so paratroopers now, do that. I know that that picture is not a perfect depiction sure. of he's wearing his you know, eye even this, how, 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 it, how it was, but that's a pretty short drag line. That's not going to give yeah. you any indication. No, I think know. that's just an animation. So, yeah, Tina, so Tina I, I, said I'm, that I'm saying it's it's not a perfect depiction. No, because Tina said is, it was dragging that, on the ground behind him. Right. So walked. I guess my so. question is, how long would that tether need to be in order for it to be safe? Because if it's up, let's say it's a four foot drag line, mm -hmm. and you're jumping with it, in my mind that becomes far more dangerous and far more of an impediment to the safety of the jump. Uh, you know, he could get wrapped up in it. It could hit him in the face. Uh, I mean, all kinds of things could happen, correct? It's three, around three times the height of the jumper. So let's say I'm six feet, six, five, it'd be 20 feet. Uh, if Cooper was six, let's keep it simple. It would be at least 18 feet long. No, did he have eight, 18 feet worth of spare cord? Yes, he did. Right. But I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's that's an extraordinarily long line. I think Tina would remark about that, wouldn't wouldn't she? Well, she said it was dragging on the ground. So yeah, you know, I I, I mean, and maybe he could have let it out. You know, but I don't but, know. Jude, but yeah. getting back to the idea of symmetry, mm -hmm. if Cooper's jumping with the briefcase, he's jumping with this bag with this drag line, all of these things. How difficult would it make Cooper? How difficult would it be for Cooper to remain? symmetrical and not fly into some kind of spin here 
Uh, not very, no, because what, what, what you would do is with the backpack on your back, I was able to put that backpack on my back and fasten an attache case across my backside without affecting symmetry whatsoever. No problem. And what, and about, the, the brief what about the drag bag? I, and I know you've never jumped with a drag bag, but, uh, no. it, you know, I mean, symmetry, as I said, is important for skydivers to prevent spins. Mm -hmm. And the more things that someone is attaching to themselves, the more likely it is they're going to become asymmetrical. So I, I'm wondering. Symmetry is not important for, for I, Cooper. I'm it's not important. The configuration that Cooper jumped with uh, could have, you know, caused some type of fatal. Uh, no. Fatal. It doesn't matter because let's say you are somebody that is in a spiraling aircraft and you fall out aft and down and you pull the cord. Cooper doesn't have to be symmetrical. He could be upside down with his legs. He could be like this and it would still open. It doesn't matter what way he's falling. They were designed to open and save the life of the person under it. It doesn't like you're talking about something like a para commander where you have to be completely symmetrical to take the steering toggles down so you don't twist up. These rigs don't do that. So he could have a briefcase on his arm, a money bag on his leg. He could be in a cork, a downwards corkscrew spin and still open and still open and inflate normally. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Symmetry for Cooper doesn't matter. It's not in the conversation with the rig that he took. It's going to open no matter what. I just wanted to say there's a couple of paratrooper people that are saying ex experienced paratroopers would have been able to chest pack the money or why didn't he use the chest pack as a money container and I've got mine open and this can only be closed by the firing pin. Yeah, it's not. So that, and, that's and, it open. And there's not there's a lot no of way to close either. it. either. No. It doesn't hold a lot either. It, that no. one would have, I, ended up doing, I, I should do an experiment with mine at some point. I don't know how many bundles that would hold. Maybe four. Uh, 14. 14. I did it. Wait, 14 go bundles? Yeah, yeah go, into my, go into my book when Cooper's packing the money where I had the bag and Atachi case in this and I got okay. 14 bundles into this and was able 14, to close it. Th 14 three-pack bundles, I guess. No, for, uh, 14 uh, packets of... Uh, packets. 100 bills? Yeah. So 14 pack packets of 100 bills. Yeah. So that's going to be... Fourteen thousand dollars. Four, four to twenty-eight thousand. Twenty-eight thousand. I was able to get them. Twenty-eight thousand on here. So that's three to but, four bundles. The bundles. When they said they bundles together, uh, yeah, but the bundles. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, and, and to be clear, to Not dispel much. any myths, the the money bag that Cooper was provided was plenty big. It was not oh, yeah. overflowing with money. It, you can see uh, it behind was, me. Not, was not bursting at the seams. It was plenty big. So um, the idea that Cooper would need to move money no. into another container because the money bag wasn't holding it is is bollocks. And we know also that yeah. he kept it in there because he was so diligent about wrapping it over and over and over around and around and having a neck on it. I mean, he yeah. really reinforced the bag. Correct. So he had no reason to take it wasn't spilling out. And no, I've got I wish I had could bring it down, but I've got plenty of room up in that one up there. Bill Grinnell said they held three hundred. They held three hundred thousand dollars because I asked him myself. I said, "How much do those great, bags hold?" Okay, good for you. It was three. It was three. It was three. It was three hundred. Are you sure you were standing beside me? You were sitting by me whenever yeah, I asked I him. I've heard that. That's great. Well, I, I showed him. Three hundred had a C tac a C tac a C first bag at CooperCon. I, I forget. Yeah. Was that yours, Ryan? 
No, but that'd have been Eric's probably. Yeah. Sorry. Anyways, I, I showed it to him and he said, he, he said, yeah, that, that was, you know, that was the type of bag that, that would have been used. So, um, yeah, it, the, the, the money would have fit quite adequately in the, in the money bag. So let's, let's dispel any idea that he needed. 300 went in those bags. Yeah. I, I think people have this idea where bag. Cooper was like shoving packets under his parachute you know, straps and stuffing them down his pants. And it, it was unnecessary. He had the bag. The bag was plenty secure. Right. Okay. Yeah. So really to go back to our point about his demise is that Jude is going to continue to think he ended up in the water that night. Right. I mean, that's just well, thought. Well, where is he? And where's all this stuff? Well, I took it with him. That's what I would say. You know, the bottom? I mean, this is a guy who was all he was he showed that he was diligent about not leaving shit behind on the yeah. plane you know uh, of course his tie but my 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 belief is is for those watching is that the tie that was a brain fart i think that if you're a male any male we're all men who wear ties if you take a tie off the first thing you do is throw it on the nearest thing you just instinctively lay it on the bed or on the counter or anything and i think that cooper just brain farted and just took it off and laid it down really quickly probably intending to take it with him and just roll it up and put it in his, put it in his pocket or something. But again, by, by the time he was doing that, his brain was on different things. His mind was on not dying imminent, imminently. And or so getting I, the electric and, chair after getting on the ground. Right. Or yes, which was, I guess that's how they would have killed them. Yeah. Back in 72. Um, but yeah. yeah, that's, um, but yeah, so, so I, that, the reason I know that the reason why I think that he lived is because I just think that something, something would have, see, I have the opposite thing. People say if he lived, something would have turned up, but I say, if he died, something would have turned up because the money? there's Tina Barr. The sure. Sure. But again, the science for that indicates that it didn't happen that, that winter, it didn't happen during the hijacking. So science said the earth was flat once, Ryan. Okay. No, the church did Jude. The church. Did. That's, true. <laughs> That's true. The science, the Greeks, what was it? I don't know who it, you know, so I forget who it was, but yeah, I, I guess my the way I approach it is and I try to thread the needle on this and, and that probably pisses people off more than somebody taking a, a hard stance somewhere else. But I, I do agree with Jude in that the money, the river, I think, explains everything. It explains why we never found a body, explains why we never found a parachute rig, explains why we never found the rest of the money, never found a money bag. Um, the, the, the river took care of it all. And I think. It's possible, probable, maybe plausible that um, those things all ended up at the bottom of the Columbia at some point and eventually made its way out to the Pacific Ocean. And we're never, ever, ever, ever going to find it. Um, I, I do agree that if Cooper, um, you know, augured into the ground, to use Himmelsbach's term, somewhere at, in orchards, he would have been found. Um, so I don't think that happened. Um, but if he pulled the chute and had a successful deployment of his canopy, even if he landed and had a hard landing, he would have survived and, and gotten away. Um, so I think my theory is this, and that is either he jumped somewhere over Vancouver and the he had a Martin McNally and the money came down within the floodplain along the river, uh, the riverbank, and he was able to deploy successfully and landed and got away but lost the money. Um, or he, um, no pulled and ended up just smacking into the ground along the riverbank in the floodplain 
and then spring floods came around and um, washed everything, the money, the money bag, Cooper, his rig, everything um, down, uh, down river during the floods. So um, obviously there's some, you know, people who are going to, and, and rightfully so, people who are going to push back and, and give reasons why that's, why that's not true. But um, I think that's probably the best explanation. So I agree with Jude that the river explains everything, um, why we haven't found anything. Um, but, um, you know, I, I also think it's possible that he was a no pull. I also think it's possible that he survived and lost the money. Either way, I don't think Cooper's a hero and I don't think he, uh, uh, you know, got away with it. And, uh, I don't think he's sipping a Mai Tai on a beach in, in Maui, uh, despite the many people in the vortex who wish that he, he, that's how he ended up. Um, frankly, I hope that he no pulled and had a very panicked last 60 seconds of his life. Yep. He, uh, yeah, I, it's a good way to put it. He was not a, he was not Han Solo in a business suit and a cheap tie. Okay. He was not James Bond. Certainly not. This was a desperate individual who woke up that day, not caring if he went to sleep that night ever again. Right. Yeah. And, and I think so, the jump was survivable, but that sure. doesn't mean he survived. And, and I, I think those are two different things. Um, you know, you know, it's survivable driving from your home to church every Sunday morning. That doesn't mean that you're going to survive that trip 100% every single time. There's a, a chance you can be killed on your way to church on a Sunday morning. Um, same thing here. The jump is survivable, sure. That doesn't guarantee his survival. Right. Okay. So... I'll throw one thing out here just as we end a random thought that when for people who talk about the money find for people who claim that the money was planted. If you're going to plant Cooper money in 1980, you planted near Lake Merwin, not near Tina Barr. That's that's that makes no sense, because if you're trying to convince people he died, you plant it, it you, you wash it ashore. You let you fight. You let a fisherman pull it out while he's, you know, fishing catfish in Lake Merwin, not fishing trout or whatever in the river. And you so, don't hide money that you want to be found. You right. don't bury money that you want to be found. You, you put it someplace conspicuous. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually had a conversation with Brian Ingram. I'm finally getting around to writing my Tina Barr chapter. It's the last chapter of my book. I've been delaying it for so long. But uh, in my research, reading a lot of the articles from the time period where, they, where things I'd never known about it that – they interviewed a, there was a guy named Tipper who was a regular at Tina Bar. He was a regular fisherman there. He spent, he was, a, he was like 80 years old. He spent his retirement there fishing. He was like a regular. And in fact, Brian had been fishing earlier in the day with this old man. The old man was showing him how to fly fish or something in the river. But the old guy said, told the media, he said, you know, a couple of days ago, I, my line broke on something. He said something, and I've never had my line break here but my line caught something and it just, it wouldn't budge. It was so heavy and it wouldn't move and it snapped. He said, I don't know what it was. He said, I'm maybe he said, maybe it was Cooper's, Cooper's parachute or, or, or a money bag. He says that to the media he says, I don't know, but my line broke a few days ago. And really the fact is they were all convinced at the time. And we know that they were convinced at the time that the money washed ashore within a couple of weeks before then was what they thought. 
because there had been a huge melt of snow. There had been a huge snow melt about two weeks earlier and the river had risen about five feet or something like that and would have would have actually submerged that area. And that's what these fishermen were saying. Like, yeah, that area was covered up two weeks ago. And that's what they think. And because, again, it wasn't very deep. As you see, if you see Dwayne Ingram in the uh, D.B. Cooper case closed, when he goes back to Tina Bar, Dwayne says, when they ask him how deep it was, he goes, it couldn't have been very deep. He said, because Brian was a little kid. Brian had a little kid arm and he just raked off the top layer and it was there. So that's really shallow for the sand, right? So the fishermen were saying it could have been very deep. They felt like they say all that the fishermen say that the Columbia River, this was Tipper, the guy who lived there or whatever. He said that that river was so silty, had a lot of silt in it. Well, that's our silt thing. But he said the river had a lot of silt and that when flooding happens, it, it would have, it could have pushed the money there and covered it back up with, with that silt from the, from not the flood, but not a flood, but the river rose and went down. But it was interesting to hear the Fazios and all of them say, yeah, we get a lot of debris. This, this is them talking in 1980. They're saying we get a lot of debris here after the river rises. It, things wash up right here, right at the spot. And so that's really, but again, winter diatoms, right? This is the money's found in February. So where's the winter diatoms there? And then again, Tom's latest discovery about there being no silt. I don't want to talk just, about it. I know it hurts. Yeah, it hurts the brain for those. Who I, know. I, I swear to God, I told you, Ryan, like I, I, I put myself I lay awake at night thinking about that. I have I've ha I have had dreams about it because I spend so much time tossing that I, that around in my head, trying to come up with a reasonable explanation for it. And I just can't do it. And it makes me yeah. crazy. It makes me belligerent. The, I mean, denial is a horrible thing. Denial look, is a horrible thing. Tom's he fell in the water with the money. No, but Tom's left hook was the diatoms. The uppercut is no silt. Yeah. Right. So it's like, okay, so it didn't it didn't arrive in winter. Or it didn't get wet in winter. Yes, and we, did. we and it didn't flood. And flooding didn't cause this, according to Tom. Yeah, no, because it had already been in by the time of the flood. Well, well no, it's just there's no th silt. To be clear, it was it seemed to be exposed to flood water but it was not buried by flood water, right? Because it, uh, right. Had, it had summer diatoms on it. So do you get the distinction that I'm making here? No. It, Try again. It had summer diatoms on the money. We know that. So it had to be exposed to spring, summer water. And spring, yes. summer water is flood water. So at some point, it had to be exposed to flood waters. It had to be exposed to those diatoms, unless I suppose it was exposed to diatoms later in the summer, like August after the floods were gone. Um, yeah, but. I mean, the only the only explanation to square everything with Tom's research is the theory that you and I, and I assume Jude, of course, dislike, which is the money plant, right? That Cooper deliberately got it soggy to make it look like it had been wet. And yeah, that's the only scientific yeah, as I've pointed out, the only scenario that makes sense given Tom's restrictions is Cooper took the Cooper or someone took a packet of money, dunked it in the water for several minutes, walked up onto the beach, dug a hole, put the money in the hole, and then buried it over. That's that the only ludicrous. scenario that makes sense given the constrictions. Do I think that's what's ha what happened? 
I do not. Um, it, it's far too illogical for someone to want to rinse money off in the in the river. Um, but uh, yeah, Jude, Jude, go ahead. Uh, little known fact: Mrs. Ingram and Brian washed the money after they got it. That's where the winter diatoms went after yeah. Cooper plunged into the water with the money. But it didn't. It didn't have winter diatoms on it. It had summer. Yeah, because. Yeah, because Miss, Mrs. Ingram and, and, and Little Brian at the time. Yeah, but the, the, water, the tap water but, came from from the the Columbia, right? It would have had right, winter diatoms in the tap water. It would have had winter diatoms on the money. Um, yeah, yeah, that that that's already been. I think Doctor Edwards swung and miss on that a while back. I think that was one now, of his he, theories was that the diatoms came from the sink or something. Here's here's one thing though. Before, I know we got to go, uh, Ryan. But um, what about the Q and A? We've got questions. People have asked questions. Do we do we address those? Keep going, Chris. Yeah. Okay. Go. Um, it, 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 one thing that Tom did point out is how the money was bundled. And this is important because um, he indicated that the money was wrapped in currency strap. The, the hundred bills were wrapped in currency straps and then rubber bands were placed around those and it was secured into a, 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 a oh my gosh, a bundle or a brick of money. Okay either three, four, or five packets. That's important because the belief up until now has always been, well, it had to have been planted. It had to have been buried by human hands because there's no way that three packets of money are going to float down the Columbia and then somehow end up almost directly on top of one another on a beach. That's impossible. And I'd agree that's impossible. But the but my contention has always been and i'm not the only one who has said this is that the money arrived in a in a rubber banded bundle and then that bundle was ended up buried and that's how the money packets ended up together and i think tom's analysis and his presentation at coopercon kind of put that to bed and kind of dispelled the notion that the only way the packets could have gotten there is by human hands and in my mind that's that's not true it certainly could have gotten there by natural arrival as well. Big Cat makes an argument that I made a while back. Uh, well, I didn't, I didn't make this argument, but it goes back to Cossie modifying the shoot. And this is what I, Mark Meltzer said the same thing about as well on this when I brought it up to Mark. He says the rig was not modified. There's no way that Cossie gives a death trap to a pilot, you know, who needs it for an emergency FAA required requirement. And, and that's what, you know, that's what, uh, Mark would say that there's no way he would give him some tricked out rig, you know. Well, again, if that's Cossie, the case, then Earl Cossey was lying to the FBI and committing a federal uh, Maybe, and again, he may not have been lying. He may have forgotten. I don't know. But the bottom line is that the best thing we have is, again, when we have, com when we, when we have conflicting evidence in this case, you go with the evidence that is closest to the event. And we've got Cossey's statements about the parachute rig you know, two days after the hijacking where he says it's a MB-8 and doesn't say anything about it being modified or special or, you know, and again, why would he even give, why would he even give Norman Hayden anything that, that he had, that he had had any affinity for that he had messed with. He just gave him the cheapest thing he could. And that's what Cooper jumped with was the cheapest thing he could. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. The, um, let's say, where'd the briefcase go? We answered that. Quick point uh, on the the modified rig, the one in the the one that the museum in Washington that the, they're refusing to hand out. All the right. modifications 
that Cossie said that Cooper was on the Cooper Reggie jump with her on that one, and they were both Norm Hayden's. Why would well, one then, be modified well, then, and the other not be? Well, then, the, the, then it's likely that maybe that's what Earl Cossie was remembering in his brain was that particular shoot when he's describing it later on. You know, maybe he's just remembering. Maybe he's misremembering which one Cooper jumped with because he. But but that undermines the but that undermines Big Cat's premise that um Cassie wouldn't provide it to Hayden. Oh, I see. He did provide it to he. He obviously provided a modified shoot to Hayden. So um, you know whether the two were identical or not is up for debate. But Cassie did exactly that. Provided a modified shoot to Hayden. Uh, apparently in direct uh, contradiction to FAA regulations. Yeah, no, that's not that's not true. I, I double-checked that to see if that's actually true, where providing a, a civilian pilot with a simplified shoot, with a, you know, a, a cord-only shoot, is absolutely fine. That is not in violation of FAA, because with this, with all the, the crap on it, it's going to be worse, because it's like, where the hell's the ripcord, right? That's the Cape Well quick release. You know, that's that that's the D-ring handle. That's the emergency handle. The chest strap. No, it's just jumping. Well, and, and again, let's do get let's do give Cooper some credit. Again, he checked the packing cards. He knew what the hell a packing card was. He knew what, he knew what yeah. flaps were. He allegedly, apparently, knew what flight plans were. He put on the parachute easily, according to Tina. He inspected the parachutes, according to Tina. I mean, this. It's like he saying also, you, it's like saying you can drive a car, but I don't know where the where the gear shift is, right? I mean, he knows. Yeah, he what also rejected is. the instructions for the shoots. He there was you go offered too, yeah. instructions for the shoots and said, "I don't, I don't need them." And compare that to McNally, who had to have the flight engineer come back at gunpoint and demonstrate how to put a parachute on. So you know, somebody who did not know how to put a parachute on was McNally, and he figured it out, or, or he had to have somebody explain it to him. Uh, yeah, I think I think the idea of putting a, a back rig on though is a little o- uh, overinflated. Both of my kids who have never been near a skydiving center were able to put uh, sure the, the, it's not one crazy. of those shoots on and, and without it's not a, a crazy problem. feat of engineering to put one on. But the yeah, yeah, it's, that, it, it's it's not it's not putting on an astronaut suit. Yeah, but if, again, if no. you, if your life depends on surviving in the next five in the next thirty seconds, I'm going to figure out where the where where, where the report is, but ahead of time. Yeah, just saw a no. And again, like Dave Feudman says, you jump with holding on to it, probably even, you know, just to be just to be extra careful about it. Or, you know, if he was an actual jumper, then as Mark Meltzer says, Mark Meltzer says he would have squitted. He would have just opened it and it would have pulled him out and there would have been no dramatic shock that would have ripped a bag off or something like that. It would just easily pulled him out. If you if you squid, if you if you turn backwards and apparently the uh, Heineman of all people. Heineman was witnessed exiting backwards yeah. by uh, uh, one of the uh, co-pilots who went back there just just in time to see him go, and said that he went backwards. So possibly that Cooper did that as well. And I'll say this to end it about his survival. All of our copycats survive. We look. We've got Martin McNally never put on a parachute rig. Jumps with a twenty-four foot front reserve. Possibly Mark Meltzer believes set a civilian record at the time for fastest ejection from an or fastest exit from an aircraft of a civilian <laughs> jumper ever at that point. Now, and seriously, he says there's no way no one would have done that recreationally ever. Yeah, Mark, and, Mark has said he would not attempt Marty's jump. 
mean, oh, that no, wouldn't no. be permitted. He's got, no, it wouldn't be permitted. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't. Thousands and so thousands dangerous. of jumps. He says, I would never do that. Never do no, that. They were trying to kill him. Dangerous. They were trying to kill him. And, and so They're, they were going through 330 miles an hour. So we have McNally jumps at night, never, 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 never did anything with parachutes before. He lives. Frederick Heinemann, there's no, no evidence he had any parachute experience past being on a bomber crew in World War II. He was a radio operator on a B-17 or B-24, I think. Or I'm not sure. But there's no, no evidence he'd ever jumped. He lands, he jumps over Honduras at night in the jungle and manages to walk into town the next day to get a shave. Okay. So there's that. You've got Richard, La, uh, Richard LaPointe, who had, who, there's no evidence he'd ever jumped before. He had parachute training as a helicopter crewman. But he jumps over Colorado in the in January, wearing cowboy boots, slacks, and a western style t- shirt, button up shirt. Lands in a snowdrift, breaks his ankle, does break his ankle, but he lives. You know. Then you've got, of course, Rob Hetty and McCoy are the actual skydivers, so of course they're going to live. But the point is, is that Cooper's jump wasn't any more crazy than they, than theirs were, and they lived and. I would say the terrain even, I'd rather jump over Clark County than jump over Honduras, certainly. I mean, there are mountains in Honduras, and that is the jungle as well. So that's not a, so really, again, it's the vortex, right? We just don't know. There's not, there's no evidence to say he died, really, other than him being separated from his money, which again, that can be explained away by him just losing the money. So, and there's no evidence that he survived, particularly, because the money was never spent at a Kmart in in Dayton, Ohio, right? So that never happened. So, and nobody ever found a body or nobody's found any gear or anything that you would expect if he, so my thing to close this is that I can't, I always tell people, look, Chris Cunningham is the guy I respect the most as far as the flight path goes. And if Chris Cunningham cannot put him in the river, then I don't, I don't think we can. I think we can put him close enough for the money to be close to the river. But as far as his body going in the river, I don't, I don't think, I don't see that, especially because like I said, that would require a no pool at that, at that point, it would require a no pool. Otherwise he's jumping at eight seventeen or something over the airport, which is highly unlikely. So. Now, Ryan, before you get the last word here, I just want to point something out is that, when people ask me to Cooper live or die, I always give a glib answer. And I say 50, 50 because he either lived or he died. Um, okay. And, but here's the thing is that because there's no evidence either way, um, we have to look at suspects who have lived as well as those who disappeared in 70, 71. Um, so, you know, and, and there are a few, there's not many, yeah. but a lot of people, as we've talked about privately have vanished and there's no, they've never made it to a missing person's database. That's right. So um, that they're undocumented. They're the missing missing. So, um, you know, we have to look at suspects who are lived and also just as we have to give as much credence as those who, who, um, who may have died in or around, you know, 19, you know, late 1971. And the way that my brain works is that really I would prefer I would give more credence to a, a suspect who's never seen again. Yeah. But, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like yes. I, if I came across a compelling person who was missing, they get, they get bonus points on a, on a suspect matrix really. Yeah. Because yeah. Cooper. And, yeah. And, and my, and, look, I, yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I have a POI. I'm not going to call him a suspect, and I, I doubt he's Cooper, but he's an interesting guy, and he did go missing in a right, right about the same time period, and he's got connections to the Pacific Northwest. Um, there are certainly knocks against him, um, but he matches the description and those types of things. So they're out there, and he didn't go uh, – he did not appear – as a missing person in any official document uh, 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 database until 2019. So, um, you know, they're out there. There are people who went, who, you know, could have gone missing in November 71 um, or thereabouts and never appeared on any, any database. Lee Seller. I mean, Lee Seller is very high on my matrix. Lee Seller. I mean, at least your guy appeared on a missing persons, even in 2019 or whenever Lee Seller's never been, Missing. Yeah. No. Missing no death certificate. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, he's as never, far as family, his family didn't care. His family were glad to be rid of him, essentially. Yeah. And so they yeah. didn't care. Yeah. So I think that's. So, anyways, I just I just wanted to point that out is that because we don't know his survival, um, you know, to any strong degree, uh, there's no evidence data, you know, data for it. We we got to look at both the living and the dead in terms of Cooper. So with that, folks, good night and good luck. And thank you to my guests and I will talk to you guys again soon. And uh, maybe next week I'll do something uh, where I talk about suspects who are missing digits on their fingers. The Tina Bar money. Do the Tina Bar money. Do Tina Bar. I will, I will, I will, I will be having drinks in hell with Walter Recca before I do a Tina Bar episode of this podcast. Speaking of drinks, Tessa and I are doing a Facebook live on Friday and we're going to be sampling bourbons from 1971 and talking about his drink of choice. So, Yes, for those who don't know, go join the D.B. Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook. Just D.B. Cooper Mystery Group, and you can see all this, all the shenanigans go up that happen on there, and you will see Chris and a lovely female researcher drinking period bourbons uh, on Friday night. So cheers, folks. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios.